0: all right good morning to you we start off with the latest covid numbers in british columbia the second wave getting bigger as it washes over british columbia and yesterday sadly another record-setting day in the province 717 new cases of covid confirmed yesterday 11 more deaths in british columbia from the disease that are but those are both new single day records yesterday as the covid19 pandemic continues to wash over british columbia let's talk about about these issues now, with my guest Sonia. First to know, she is the leader of the BC Green Party, just re-elected in uh, Cowichan Valley on Vancouver Island. Thanks a lot for coming on.
1: Happy to be here, Mike.
0: Okay, I was looking at your Twitter feed. I encourage everyone to, to to follow you on Twitter. And you posted the other day after the the Education Minister Rob Fleming did a media availability about COVID in schools, and you wrote today's Scrum did little to answer the questions parents have been asking for months while we are in an unnecessary election i fear this will continue until until a new government is formed and we know who is in the cabinet we need more answers than what we're getting right now Uh, what what are the answers you're looking for here as covid19 continues to rise
2: well i I, boy I, i think first of all i just want to say that these numbers are are quite worrying and um you know, my heart goes out to all of the families who have lost loved ones, yes. and especially to the healthcare workers who are, I'm sure, feeling extremely mounting pressures in their lives right now and stresses. I, you know, so this is a, an incredibly stressful time for people. And the, the, the reality is that we are now at the two-month mark where we haven't had a government and a cabinet in place, and so over this time, the, these last couple months, when we could have seen proactive uh, decision-making by government, we could have had the legislature sitting, we could have had uh, the questions and, and issues being raised to government, um, we, that wasn't possible because we were in the election. And now it mm-hmm. feels very much to me like we are um, behind... The eight ball on so many things, and we still don't have a cabinet sworn in. We're still, you know, the writs have returned, but we're. We, we don't have a, a government in place, and, and this well, has well, been there's the a, worst time.
0: Well, the government, I mean, the cabinet will be sworn in next week, but mm-hmm. I mean, the government, I mean, you know, Horgan said yesterday, well, the government's still functioning. I mean, Adrian Dix is doing daily press briefings with Bonnie Henry. We're on top of this stuff mm-hmm. uh, he's dealing with. It. So, I mean, there's a there's still a government functioning, right?
2: It's in caretaker mode. But, uh, you know, I, Mike, I'm not sure if you or your listeners feel like we're on top of this when we had 717 cases announced yesterday. That doesn't feel like the kind of on top of this that I think we have been hoping for in British Columbia. Happening happening um, everywhere, though,
0: right? I mean, we're not it, alone it, here. It's it, happening. Every jurisdiction is going up, up. Uh,
2: in yes it, it is happening at at different rates and and, and yeah. governments are making decisions you know all over the place to to address this in terms of the teachers i mean this has been an ongoing um discussion and and i've I've watched closely and and reached out to a lot of teachers and administrators and I think that you know when it comes to um teachers in their classrooms and all of us can recognize that you know, on the one hand, we're not to have more than six people in our in our kind of social circle gathering, um, but on the other hand, our kids are going to school in, in classrooms and in cohorts of over a hundred people sometimes. That it it there is there is that kind of logical challenge that people have, and 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 from the health officials, we hear no that you know it's 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 safe. But I think that what we have to recognize is that teachers, and students, and families also want to feel safe. So what, what are they asking for to help them feel more safe when they go to work in the morning? Um, what are they feeling that they're lacking? And I was quite astonished to see last night a tweet from Patty Backus about, you know, one school administrator sending out a, an email to the teacher saying, don't use so much paper towel. We're, we're running out of budget on paper towel. And I thought, this is not going to help people feel safe.
0: Okay, the teachers' union has been sort of beating this bass drum here for months now about mandatory face masks in school. I mean, I think a lot of people are masking up in schools. Mm-hmm. I get, I got kids in the public system myself. They tell me they're they're wearing, they see face masks when they're at school. Uh, do you think it should be mandatory in schools?
2: I think if, if a teacher, if that's you know what helps a person or a teacher feel safe, then I think that they should have that that. Um, option of saying and you know wear a mask in my classroom um, and and that teacher may have many reasons for for wanting that extra layer of of protection in his or her classroom. Um, so you think and, it should be I, a,
0: you think it should be like a classroom by classroom decision of an each individual teacher then?
2: Well, I mean, I, you know, this is this is the problem that we have because you know, I am listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry and and, yeah. and the indication of she doesn't want to go to mandatory mask wearing, but the, the challenge that that presents for people um whether it's teachers in classrooms, whether it's business owners is then it it puts it on them. It puts the onus on them. And I I really do think that we need um more clarity and consistency on this. Um and I recognize what Doctor Bonnie, Doctor Henry says about, you know, for some people a mask is is not possible. But I think that that's a, a small number of people, and and that if if this is what it's going to take um, for people to have that that added level of safety and security, because let's recognize yeah. that in addition to COVID, there is a mental health aspect to all of this, right. and people are feeling that that. Deep challenge of um, anxiety and stress because of of the pandemic and and the economic stresses we're all under. And, um, you know, so let's recognize that. Let's find ways to also be addressing those mental health and anxiety issues, right? It's not just about. The, the COVID-19 virus, it's about the impacts that that's having on our well-being generally. Well, speaking
0: to a BC Green Party leader, Sonia, first to know, one of the other things that the teachers union is looking for here, in addition to mandatory masks, is they want smaller classrooms, which is something they yeah. were seeking even before COVID-19. But I, I spoke to the president of the Teachers Association in Surrey on the show earlier this week, and and he said, why can't we have a maximum cap on kids in class of 15? So, mm-hmm. fifteen kids max in a class, mm-hmm. and I was like, "How do you accomplish that? wouldn't you have to you know hire thousands more teachers and he said, "No, what you could do is just have kids going to class in sort of staggered hours mm-hmm. split the classes up in order to achieve more social distancing, spread them out more effectively. Do you think that's something the government should be looking seriously at
2: yeah i i I do, and I think that when you know school districts and um, schools are coming forward with solutions like that and, and showing how they can achieve that, you know, the, the fewer kids in the classrooms, then um, the, those solutions should be considered and, and looked at and how to achieve them. This is one of the things I've also been talked about, talking about, and I talked about it a lot during the election campaign, was you know, one choice that the government had before the election was to um, ensure that the Operational funding grants for the, the school district stayed at the 2019-2020 levels, which would have given schools uh, just some added flexibility in terms of, of their funding. Um, but the government chose not to do that. They adhered to the kind of standard, you know, exactly the funding based on exactly the number of kids in, in the classrooms um, this September which meant that, I think, across the board, school districts saw a decrease in their operation funding grants from last year. And that meant, for example, um, decreases in hours uh, for for counsellors in some schools and school districts at a time when, again, we know that the mental health impacts are going to be significant from this time. Um, And we should be proactively addressing that in the schools, giving the, the students the the tools that they need to navigate this, and recognizing that the teachers are also experiencing levels of stress and, and you know, the mental health impacts right. that come from that. I, I, this is my, you know, I, I think that when we're in a crisis like this and it's a, it's a kind of a slow motion, long, longer term crisis, um, we have to be looking at what the evidence and the experts are telling us and making our decisions in real time about how do we mitigate these impacts that we're going to see on um, the medium and longer term.
0: Okay. It's been great to have you on again. Thank you for coming on the show today.
2: Thanks, Mike. Always Uh a pleasure.
0: All right. Welcome back. We continue to see the COVID numbers rising in BC. It was a bleak day yesterday. 717 new cases of COVID in the province. 11 more deaths. Those are both single day records. What is coming down the pipe here? We see some restrictions in place in Metro Vancouver. Those are supposed to be in place for two weeks. So supposed to end at this, at the end of this week, but I suspect that those will be extended. Have a listen to this now. Here's Premier John Horgan. He's talking about whether we could see more economic lockdowns here to deal with the virus.
3: We need to make sure that everyone is safe, and that means uh, pairing up public health officials with WorkSafe uh, inspectors and other inspectors that are available to us, whether they be bylaw officers officers in, in communities or others. And that's how we're going to drive the curve down again. And we want to do that by keeping the economy open to the greatest extent possible. But it is going to require people to get with the program. And there's a whole bunch of people that are not abiding by the minimalist uh, rules we had in place. And that's why we've seen the regional issues that Dr. Henry brought forward uh, this week.
0: Okay, it was interesting to hear Horgan this week also talk about a potential travel ban to Vancouver Island. And that's been a real hot talking point this week after the medical health officer on the island suggested a possible travel ban or a 14-day quarantine if you do travel to Vancouver Island. What do you think about that? The COVID numbers going up on the island, less than the lower mainland as usual, but going up there as well. Should there be a travel ban? Should you be required to quarantine for 14 days? If you travel to the island, phone me on that. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Lonnie in
4: the Fraser Valley. Hi, Lonnie. Hey, good morning.
0: Hi. Go ahead.
4: Um, I just need to tell you about the situation I'm in. I'm in the Fraser Valley, and we know the numbers. I work for a school district. Um, I know that money came down from the feds, and everyone's pouring money into protecting and making staff feel safe. But I want to tell you, as a school bus driver, what I received from my district. And we have one door in, one door out. I have four into the bus. The bus is 350 square feet. I have 47 students, elementary students without masks from many different cohorts from grades kindergarten to five coming into the bus every day. I'm in my seat. They're coming up. They're in my face. What the district has given me for protection are two flimsy masks that shrunk in the wash and one dollar and a half plastic visor that I can only wear when I'm not driving. So while I'm in the bus driving, 350 square feet with 45 unmasked students, playing, laughing, everything, I have no protection. I don't feel like my district has done anything to help me. And with the guidelines from Fraser Health and the... um, All the ministries of education and health and everything, Adrian Dix, Pawnee Henry, all these guidelines never got down to some people. And when you have to step up and say, hey, I don't feel safe, I don't think anyone gives a rat about what I'm experiencing here, and you speak up and you say something, and you get told that from your management, that um, you're being—they're within the guidelines. They're doing everything that is necessity, and you feel like garbage, just like garbage, like nobody cares about you.
0: What? Okay, Lonnie, I'm really, I'm really happy you phoned in. What school district do you work for?
4: I can't say I can okay. be fired for speaking out.
0: Okay, okay, fair enough. I, th- I thought the rules, though, were in in most districts that kids would have to mask up on a bus.
4: No not in elementary and we're not allowed to ask we're not allowed to bother them we're not allowed
0: okay so when you when you complained you were just told to what shut up and do your job
4: exactly basically yeah yeah
0: okay lonnie thank you for calling in and sharing that i appreciate it let's go to uh lynn on the line in surrey she's a teacher hi lynn hi how are you doing i'm good go ahead
1: um, I just wanted to say that I, you know, I am all for supporting our first-line, frontline front workers, the nurses, the doctors, everybody, because they, they do such a challenging job and such a risky time. And yet, as a teacher, we have nothing set in place, to, to echo what Lonnie was saying there, too, because we, nobody has to worry about And, and yeah. our districts can only mandate what they can mandate based off of what Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix mandate okay we only
0: got 30 seconds yeah. here what what uh, what grade do you teach
1: I, I do secondary
0: okay so you're in high school so what what is it yeah. like what's it like for for kids masking up in school like are most kids wearing the masks or not
1: many are but yeah. some aren't and that's all that it takes and some teachers aren't so oh. hmm. go with that right like it's it's your right to wear it or not yeah. so we're not safe So where's the support for the teachers? We are keeping kids at bay so that people can go to work and the economy can run. Without us, then what?
0: All right, welcome back to the show. You just heard that news there, uh, breaking news at the bottom of the hour there with Gord Mack about the city of Vancouver now pushing to decriminalize possession of all drugs, not just marijuana, which, of course, is already uh, legal. All drugs, okay? So the city of Vancouver is saying that uh, possession of small amounts of drugs should not be a crime. Now, remember, this is federal jurisdiction, so they need the feds to cooperate here. They need Justin Trudeau to sign out on for this. They need an exemption under the Controlled Substances Act. Another thing to keep in mind here is that the Vancouver Police Department already says that they do not charge and ticket people now for possession of small amounts of drugs. Now, some people will dispute that and say sometimes there are charges. There's another charge, possession of drugs for trafficking. There are still drugs like the charges like that handed out. Vancouver police will uh, confiscate small amounts of drugs if they catch people with them. But that is a fascinating move here. And we're going to talk more about that on the show today. So make sure you keep it locked right here as we continue to talk about decriminalizing drug possession in the city of vancouver so keep it locked here and get set to call me on it on the open line later on okay but first let's talk about the second wave of COVID 19 surging across the country let's find out how restaurants are coping here some have been shut down in other parts of the country my guest is mark von shelwitz he's the vice president for western canada with restaurants canada mark thanks a lot for coming on
5: uh my pleasure mike good morning to you
0: good morning to you how many restaurants have been shut down in canada like have some provinces shut down in person dining
5: Yes, we have. Have obviously with the latest round of restrictions in Ontario, Quebec, and Manitoba. Uh, you know, we already had. The med- close to half our members that are losing money every month and are going more and more into debt and another 20 odd percent that were just breaking even. So where those restrictions have been applied in in those other areas of the country, of course, it's, it's costing a lot of jobs and it's costing a lot of businesses. And fortunately in BC, we've managed to hire back most of our employees and uh, the industry is operating. But as I said, it's still, you know, even in the best of times, it's a, it's a tough, low margin, very competitive labor intensive industry. And, uh, It's certainly been challenging as uh, members try and get through uh, COVID, uh, like the rest of British Columbians, uh, you know, in survivability mode. And, and, uh, you know, they would obviously argue that uh, uh, they've done a really good job with their safety plans. And we can see that in the numbers that Dr. Henry's coming out, that where the real spread is coming from is private gatherings, not from restaurants.
0: Right. So therefore, do you think it's fair to shut down in-person dining and restaurants in other provinces? And who knows if, if we'll go there in British Columbia, hopefully not. But do you think it's fair to shut restaurants down? I mean, has there been a lot of COVID spread in restaurants in Canada?
5: No, and in fact, where we've seen the numbers, we've actually done a really good job. Alberta's released some numbers where, you know, restaurant spread is less than 1% of the total spread that's going on. And some of our members will argue that actually adding more restrictions on restaurants will actually have the opposite effect and actually uh, push people more into gatherings in private homes, which is where the spread is coming from. So we certainly see ourselves as that safe alternative. If you are getting cabin fever and you have to get out, Restaurants are a safe place for you to go uh, to have those interactions with others in your bubble. Uh, but we do also ask all British Columbians to exercise some personal responsibility so we can get through the second wave altogether.
0: Okay, speaking of Mark Von Shelwitz Restaurants Canada, how about the 10 p.m. liquor serving cutoff that we've got in the province right now? I mean, I've talked to a lot of pub owners and bar owners and not happy about that, uh, but you know, times are tough. What do you think about that 10 p.m. cutoff?
5: Well, I guess uh, the restriction in a lot of our members' minds doesn't make sense because what they're having is either people gathering earlier in the restaurant, making it a little bit more crowded, or cancelling the reservations altogether and going to private uh, homes for gatherings. And you know, we've also heard numerous examples of 10 o'clock, they get their bill, they go to the private liquor store, they pick up their bottle there, and they continue uh, their, their gathering at somebody's home. So uh, we're actually saying, no, stay in the restaurants. Don't you know, go uh, into a private liquor store, get your booze and go to private gatherings because that's actually contributing to the problem. So a lot of our our restaurateurs would say, look, if you're going to have some sort of a liquor curfew, it should be a curfew across the board. so, So everybody's impacted and we don't have people then just going and picking up liquor uh, for that night consumption and then going to a private dwelling to, to, to get together where they don't have those social distancing, sanitation, and, uh, you know, mask wearing, when, that type of thing. When,
0: when, you, when you say that the cutoff should be across the board, what do you mean?
5: In other words, if you're going to restrict liquor sales at 10 p.m., restrict liquor sales at 10 p.m., in other words, make sure that nobody is being able to buy at retail either. Now,
0: What, what time uh, what time do liquor stores stay open till?
5: Uh, 11 p.m. Okay. Private liquor stores. Yeah. Yeah. So it it does give them that extra hour. But uh, bottom line is, you know, there's certainly a lot of fear still out there in the industry. We don't want to see what happened, what's happening right now in Quebec and Ontario and uh, parts of Manitoba. Uh, that are in that red zone because, uh, you know, I know in talking to my colleagues, we're literally losing restaurants every single day right now because they just cannot afford another lockdown. And, uh, you know, and they feel very frustrated because they say, wait a minute, we know what we're not the cause of the spread, so uh, let's focus on where the spread is happening. Let's not, uh, you know, uh, many of them feel being scapegoated. Let's just shut down the restaurants so we're showing that we're doing something when the more effective um, restrictions should be on those yeah. private gatherings, and I think BC's understood that. And I think Dr. Right. Henry has has made that pretty clear.
0: I know a guy who runs a pub that was very successful. His business has taken a big hit because of the, because of the virus, of course. But he's still operating, and says he's following all the rules. He spread out all the tables. He takes names and addresses of people when they show up to contact trace, like he's required to do. His staff is all masked up. He says there's been no documented COVID cases traced to his his bar um and i i feel some some sympathy i i i do feel i would personally feel a little nervous going into a bar these days given this the COVID numbers we're seeing right now but you know one of the points he made was instead of punishing everyone and saying you have to cut off liquor service at 10 o'clock why not bring the hammer down on the people who are breaking the rules so the few bars that are not social distancing that are not following the regulations Make an example of them and let us serve at least until 11 o'clock, you know, the same time the liquor store is closed. What well, your thoughts?
5: Yeah, no, I totally agree 100% with what your friend has said, and I've heard that same story from many of them as well. That uh, Especially now, you've got to remember, Mike, we're entering into the season, which is for most restaurants the busiest time of year in usual circumstances, and that's that pre-Christmas time of year. And of course, you know, we're just not seeing that sales volume right now. But I I do know that uh, uh, we really have to make sure, and we've certainly said it as an organization, as have other hospitality organizations, now is the time you have to really make sure you're strictly adhering to your safety plans so that we can keep people safe. And it's for our own good as well, because we don't want to see these closures uh, that have happened in, in other parts of the country. And the best way that we can prevent that from happening is continue to do a good job and uh, making sure that uh, there is no spread coming from restaurants and making sure that we have the consumer confidence that people know that they can still safely go out yeah. and dine.
0: yeah just a couple of minutes left here I have a lot of restaurants shut down and gone gone out of business here
5: yeah we we've estimated roughly 1500 businesses uh, out of the, about 15,000 have already gone out of business and in um, BC you know, in BC permanently okay. um, and you know there's certainly end up leather uh, a segment that is sort of closed partly not knowing if they're going to be able to reopen or not so so uh anything that happens all of these different measures you know you mentioned about the pub sales well a lot of uh, liquor pub style restaurants generate 20 to 25 percent of their sales after 10 p.m so certainly that, that restrictions had an impact on their sales and uh in many cases they're saying well uh, when the real problem is people drinking at home, yeah. why are we being shut down? So, okay. so that's a real concern.
0: I just got one minute left. As the numbers continue to rise here, what would be your message to Dr. Bonnie Henry and the other health authorities here? Don't shut us down. Let us keep stay open.
5: Definitely, and, uh, and I think mm-hmm. you know, follow the data, follow the evidence, and the evidence right now is very good for restaurants. Uh, you can go out and safely eat at restaurants. Uh, but keep doing what Dr. Bonnie Henry's doing. I think the only way we're going to get through this and curb uh, the infection rate right now is for all individual British Columbians to take some personal responsibility, keep to their bubbles, uh, but still go out to restaurants as a safe alternative to private gatherings when they need to get out and meet people.
0: Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. We're going to talk some mobility pricing now because if you didn't hear, Vancouver City Council approved The Climate Emergency Action Plan last night. Oh, such a controversial plan. It means mobility pricing on the table here. Up for review here. Like a two-year review period going here now. Our show contributor, John Jang, has more.
6: Good morning, Mike. By a vote of six to four, the Vancouver City Council did approve the Climate Emergency Action Plan last night, which, in my opinion, it's a noble cause mired by controversial details. Now joining us is one councillor who voted against that proposal, that is Melissa Genova. Councillor, what was your reaction to the fact that the proposal has indeed passed here?
7: Well, I was very concerned that some of this um, work was rushed through, and I think the perception of the public was, first of all, there were so many recommendations, uh, more than I'd ever seen in my time on city council. There were over 24 uh, by the time amendments came to us, but staff brought a number of recommendations and they included, you know, pieces on mobility pricing, uh, which would mean paying a toll to come into certain areas of the city, not all areas of the city, uh, but also, residential parking permits uh, so anyone parking outside their home would have to you know deal with these residential parking permits, and that would be uh You know, an added cost expense and, you know, really just a, a, a level of red tape that, you know, what I'm hearing from people is they want to see that red tape cut.
6: And when it comes to the topic of mobility pricing, we've heard on the Mike Smith Show over the past number of weeks here on CKNW from angry listeners who think it's a number of things, but mostly unnecessary and ridiculous. So what would you say to those who think it would make more sense, for example, if the transit system was far more expansive than what it is now?
7: Well, I I think, first of all, Vancouver is a very unaffordable city, and it's one of the reasons that I decided to run. I'm on my second term, but um, as the first millennial elected to city council I didn't see anyone representing me around the table uh that understood uh you know some of the struggles and I don't profess to to know the struggles of all millennials or all younger generations uh but I you know there are people who would like to live in our city and can't afford to and instead they commute in and uh you know some of those people have situations where they have disabilities they have mobility issues they have practicality issues where they can't I can or, you know, take transit in from Chilliwack or South uh, Surrey, you know, for many reasons. Either, you know, they have family and by the time they drop their kids off at childcare one by one, uh, you know, or, or they have a, a disability or another, you know, reason. In fact, uh, one of the counselors who, who thought that, you know, who, who voted for almost all of the recommendations yesterday and really wanted to move this forward in fact, added an amendment that low-income people who needed their cars for work should be exempt from this. And to consider that, well, I mean, what is low-income? Because I think you know, on paper, uh, incomes can look good in BC and especially in Vancouver. But you know, we've we've made the list too many times for you know one of the most unaffordable cities to live in the world. And it certainly concerns me. It's something that I hear about every single day by email, phone, um, when I'm at a grocery store from you know people who are just struggling to get by. And this is just an added cost, expense, and fee. And it's not to fund transit. This will be to fund more infrastructure to create more tolling. The other issue that I really, you know, that, that I, I struggled with and the reason I couldn't support the mobility pricing is, first of all, it's not a regional approach. TransLink and the Mayor's Council, have already been doing work on this. They have a whole commission, looked at many different ways, very thoughtful. It's not moving forward as fast as perhaps we'd like, but there's many municipalities involved. And to do something right, sometimes that means, you know, taking the time to get it right. Um, that being said, I also think that there's some, some very specific, you know, considerations that have to be made, you know, as to where you draw those lines. Vancouver right now has drawn those boundaries Um at the BC, you know, the BC Cancer Agency, if you were driving in to, you know, beyond 16th uh, Avenue, Or uh, beyond Clark and the boundaries, if you need access via car, the BC Cancer Agency, you have to pay a toll to get there. Same with Vancouver General Hospital in St. Paul's, yet, you know, Shaughnessy, one of the neighborhoods with, like, the largest mansions in all of Vancouver, is somehow not in that zone. So. I understand people would have to pay the toll to drive into downtown Vancouver, but I'm not understanding why exactly it's set the way it is either. Uh, that being said, I, I totally favor a, a regional approach, but I tried to think of some of the real-world problems uh, that, that may, may come for those, uh, if this is something to move forward. In you
6: effect. personally tweeted about the citywide permit parking measure after the vote last night, you referenced your experience trying to pass the motion to provide free parking to veterans year-round, so share your thoughts on how this is supposed to work out.
7: Well, I I think, first of all, we have to be thoughtful to this and, and consider the fact that right now we're in a pandemic. We're not able to do consultation the way that we normally would do at the city of Vancouver. And I think that before we come up with an idea or a way forward, especially considering this is to meet our greenest city goals and for climate action, which I think is important. I've said that many times over, but I think there's many ways to contribute to this. And my concern is is that people instead of, you know, coming on board with something like this that could have been possible, maybe something that people even want. Uh, instead, you know, the the, the way that, that I'm hearing the public is viewing this is, oh, my gosh, you know, why is City Hall, you know, passing this through without asking us our opinion first? And, you know, I think it's simple things like that. You know, we saw a lot of that under Vision Vancouver and their government. But, you know, when it comes down to, you you brought up veterans' parking, and I thought it was pretty simple. I did the research. I wrote the motion myself. I read all of my own motions. I did the policy work, and... The fact is, is there was a very simple program. ICBC recognizes the veterans license plate, but our staff had said, you know, in their recommendations, this would take two extra full-time staff members to implement veterans parking. Maybe we would give the, some of them a scratch card. Maybe we would do license plates. They weren't sure. Maybe we could give them tokens, and it was, you know, thankfully... Uh, we we had a, a veteran, Tim Laidler, who said, please, whatever you do, no more paperwork for veterans, as we all know, you know, um, has been very taxing on them. That being said, you know, the amount of paperwork and overhead here, um, I question that considering what staff had just recommended. I have to consider that. And I don't have a clear estimate on what the pricing would be. That being said, it's not just about residents. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe that anyone owns the exclusive parking spot right in front of their home, if it's a home or a townhome um, or whatever the street might be. But I think about, you know, the the unintended consequences for, you know, child caregivers who, who come to people's homes uh, for child care, especially for shift workers who can't uh, use regular uh, child care or daycares uh i think about long term you know uh, home home care workers also who are helping people to stay independent in their communities with disabilities and mobility issues. Those are just a couple of issues. And if that's what I can, you know, think about just off the top of my head, I'm sure that there are people out there with other valid concerns I haven't even thought about. I just think it's fair that we ask them their opinion before we move forward with something that would have such such a great changes blanketed across the entire city
0: all right welcome back to the show taking a look at the covid numbers in british columbia 717 new cases of covid19 announced yesterday 11 more deaths those are both record high single day totals number of hospitalizations up nearly 200 people in hospital numbers are going in the wrong direction here now remember they brought in restrictions in metro vancouver across two health jurisdictions and premier john horgan speaking this morning asked about those regional orders. They're supposed to just last through the end of this week, but could they be extended? Here's Horgan.
3: Of course, I was briefed again today by Dr. Henry and Minister Dix and their team. Uh, They'll have more to say tomorrow at their traditional briefing. Uh, But suffice it to say that the regional orders that were brought in on November 9th uh, need to be take hold. They need to be able to take hold. That means we need to ensure that the clusters we're seeing as caseloads go up from social gatherings are reduced as much as possible.
0: Okay. Well, we certainly aren't seeing the numbers being reduced. They are going up instead. And I suspect you will see those restrictions and orders extended later this week and possibly expanded beyond Metro Vancouver as well. All right. Let's talk about COVID-19 now with my guest, Jason Tetro, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, which is just a terrific podcast I encourage you to check out. Known as the Germ Guy on Twitter. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. How you, Jason? Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So as these COVID case counts go up in British Columbia and and across Canada, too, and around the world, really, I get a lot of questions, and I know you do, too. And some of the questions are along the lines of, why are we doing this? Why are we shutting down parts of our economy? Why are we bringing in potential travel bans, especially when COVID is is a respiratory illness like the flu, 99% 99% of people survive if they get it. Can you explain that? Because, you know, we hear this often a lot. Why are we doing what are we doing? How do you respond to that? Yeah, well,
8: I mean, first off, let's just go to the biology for a moment. Okay. Sure, yeah. So they're both respiratory viruses. Yay, we know that. Here's the thing, though. The way that the virus uh, in, gets itself into a cell, and, and in other words, you know, getting gains entry, is a little bit different So influenza, what it does is it goes through um, by attaching to sugars that are on top of a cell. That's basically how biology works, and those sugars are usually part of proteins that are associated with the immune response, and essentially what it's doing is it's turning off your immune response so that it can infect your lungs and make your life a bit miserable. But your immune system figures that out, changes a little bit, attacks, and wins, all right? Now... With COVID-19, the coronavirus goes in through a protein called ACE2. And the reason that is important is because ACE2 is one of the few proteins in your body that actually regulate whether or not you're going to stay normal or go into inflammation. And part of that inflammation is your cardiovascular system. Now, if you lose this ACE2 protein because it's been taken up by the COVID-19 virus, You end up going into higher levels of inflammation and possibly into environments where you're having clotting in your blood. You could possibly have problems in in your neurological tissue. It may affect your brain, all types of things. So it's not necessarily the virus itself. It's what the virus is using to get into your cell that is the most important part. And here's the second part. With influenza, most of the people have at least some kind of immunity to it. Right. nobody has immunity to COVID-19 because this is the first time we're ever seeing it. Right. So as a result right. of that, if you don't have a robust immune response, that is going to lead to severe disease. And who is going to get that severe disease? Obviously people over the age of 50, and that is what we're seeing right now. We had a whole bunch of people in the 20s to 40s. They were getting it. They didn't care, whatever it is. Then we have intergenerational gatherings like Thanksgiving. It gets into the older communities, and now we're seeing what we're seeing.
0: What about the risk to the healthcare system? This is something that authorities will often remind people that if we Mm -hmm. don't check this thing, there's potential for hospitals and other healthcare facilities to get overwhelmed with patients. And that potentially crowds out people who are sick from stuff that's maybe not related to COVID-19. And you can quickly overrun your healthcare system. Like, is that happening in other jurisdictions where hospitals are just
8: like filling up? (laughs) I'm sorry. The, the reason I'm laughing is because the healthcare system gets overloaded every single year in about three weeks from now. Whenever you start seeing flu coming into town, you, your emergency rooms get overloaded. You have overcapacity in your hospitals. OK, now let's add COVID on top of that. And it's a disaster just waiting to happen. Now, granted, for some reason, we don't see the flu coming in as much, but we've still got adenoviruses, which can do some nasty things to you. And we've also got rhinoviruses, which mimic a lot of the same symptoms as COVID. So people might think that they've got COVID and start thinking, oh my goodness, I need healthcare. So it's not just the virus itself, but the fact that we're going into cold and flu season, that's going to lead to this sort of perfect storm or wave that's going to end up causing massive problems within our healthcare facilities. That is why we need to be able to stop the spread in the community, especially that intergenerational spread, so that we don't end up essentially overloading upon overloading our healthcare system.
0: Okay, what about the face mask debate? Where do you stand on that? And, and I often hear, and I know you probably hear it too. Well, maybe the face masks aren't as effective as we're told. They don't work. They can actually make you sick. You anyway, know, there's a lot of myths out there. There's a lot of misinformation, of course, around face masks. But why? Can you explain why the face
8: masks work and why we should wear them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's called barrier protection, and and the reason that you have a face mask is because. What you're trying to do is you're trying to take anything that's coming into your body or out of your body that happens to be wet in droplet form and getting it stuck into the fibers of the mask. It's a filtration. That's basically what it comes down to. Uh, we actually have a show on that with the Super Awesome Science Show. Feel free to go and listen. Um, but what I can tell you is that if you have two layers, just two layers you're going to be able to stop about 95 to 99% of anything that's coming in or out, including those viruses. And if you add that third layer like we've been hearing from Ottawa, then that's probably going to get you above that 99%. It doesn't really matter. What you're doing is you're protecting yourself. And anybody who happens to understand the concept of barrier protection realizes as long as there's a barrier there, you're going to reduce the chances of infection, not just necessarily with a respiratory virus.
0: Okay, there's a lot of steps being taken to try and arrest the the spread of this virus in British Columbia. We see some regional orders in place in Metro Vancouver. Uh, There's talk about new restrictions, maybe travel restrictions between provinces. Have a listen to this, Jason. Here is Premier John Horgan saying he's going to talk to Justin Trudeau about travel restrictions.
3: (laughs) We need a pan Canadian approach to travel. We need to make sure that people in Coquitlam are living under the same rules as people in Chicoutimi. We need to make sure that those who want to come to British Columbia must only do so if it is essential for their business or their well-being. Beyond that, we need to stay in our tight social circles. This is critically important at this point in the mandates and this point in the in the pandemic, I should say. We are so close. Uh, vaccine breakthroughs are very encouraging. And when the vaccines are ready, British Columbia will be ready. But we're not there yet.
0: Okay. There's a lot of debate and divided opinion about the type of lockdowns or restrictions that should be put in place mm-hmm. to control this. A lot of people say, look, you know, we're not seeing spread really in, in restaurants or grocery stores or whatever. Don't, don't shut down retail stores. Mm-hmm. And then you've got other people on the other end of it. There, there's a hashtag trending on social media these days called hashtag COVID zero which which effectively is arguing for severe lockdowns to try and try and to stop this virus very very quickly but what would you say what would you say Jason about you know restrictions on people's lives and movement
8: well when it comes to a place like British Columbia where you literally have three border or three sides that are bordering someone else it's going to be incredibly difficult What's been happening is that people have been looking at New Zealand, Iceland, uh, even the Atlantic provinces and saying, you know what, they've been doing a really great job. They've actually gotten down to zero. We can do the same thing. Well, the only way that you can do that is by preventing the influx of the virus from somewhere else. And as we've seen, that's almost impossible to do. Even if you have those travel restrictions, we just heard that we're probably going to have an increased restriction time uh, with America but that's not stopping yeah. people from coming in with the virus. So I think the zero principle is probably not likely. Instead, by essentially following the, the, the ABCs of airway protection with that barrier protection, B is bubbles, maintaining your, you know, bubbles with people who you trust virologically, not necessarily emotionally, and knowing who your contacts outside of your bubble are so you can do tracing, that's the easiest way for us to be able to beat this virus. Because if we start shutting down borders, then we get into the question of, well, who's going to be allowed to come across? Because if I really like my apples that are coming from America's Washington state, I do not want the border closed, so I can't get my apples.
0: All right. Welcome back. Talking COVID with my guest, Jason Tetro. Your calls to him, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to your phone calls. Paul in Port Moody. Hi, Paul.
5: Uh, How are you doing, Mike? First-time caller. Listen, uh, my wife works in the medical field. She works for a surgeon. We were talking about the vaccine. I wonder if your guest can back this up. What I've been told, it affects your DNA by killing the cells in your body so it can fight the COVID-19. Now, with this vaccine, there's long-term effects that nobody is aware of this. Can your guest confirm or deny if this is true or not?
8: Jason... Uh, no, uh, it's mRNA. It's called messenger RNA. And so when that goes into your skin, it's going to go into a cell. And that cell is then going to start pumping out a particular protein that kind of looks like the COVID-19 virus. It doesn't actually produce the virus at all. It just produces one small protein. Now, what's going to end up happening is that cells of the immune system are going to recognize that protein that is being produced by those individual cells. Now, granted, that cell is probably going to end up dying, but it was going to die anyways. And the immune system then gets trained to be able to figure out what COVID-19 looks like. And so after you've done this twice, after you've had your booster, your immune system is basically prepped and ready to take on COVID-19 as an actual viral infection. That's how a vaccine works. All the rest of it is essentially conspiracy theory, and, and unfortunately, it's out there. But I would just simply say, you know, talk to me, don't listen to them.
0: Okay, there's a lot of super excitement out there around the, uh, the development of these vaccines. We had two big announcements this week from Pfizer and Moderna with, you know, over 90% effective in trials for this vaccine. Uh, is, this the, is this what's going to kill this thing in the new year, hopefully?
8: Well, no. Uh, and here's the problem. As much as we are getting these wonderful preliminary results, we still haven't seen the papers yet. So I can tell you that um, I understand that they have the 90, 95% uh, f- effectiveness because we know what the numbers are of cases of people who got COVID. They talk about severity and say, okay, well, no one got severe infection in uh, the vaccine versus the placebo. But I still want to see what kind of symptoms there were, and this is the type of thing where you need that raw data. And it's only going to be through that raw data that you're going to be able to get any kind of approval. So FDA is going to approve it first, then it's going to come to canada rolling approval will then lead to it being approved here that may be somewhere in january to february and that's that's when we're going to start seeing the rollout and it's going to be very very targeted towards individuals who are at highest risk right
0: john and langley on the open line hi john
8: hi there um so two questions one is uh you know can you get the virus twice can you get the virus more than once and what are the statistics in getting that more
0: than once and also, should we not be uh, designating a, a one hospital or a hockey arena or something to, uh, to can- contain these people that have the virus? Uh, why, are we, why are we bringing virus people to all the hospitals around the land? I'll hang up and Jason. for your comments.
8: Thank you, Jason. Yeah, um, so, so let's just go through the um, second infection. Yes, it does look like some people will be able to get infected a second time. Now, I could get into the biology of all of this. The question is how many of those people will end up having symptoms? And it looks like it's very, very low. Uh, So that first infection may be able to fight the virus, so you get a mild infection, or it may be able to fight off the virus, so you get no uh, symptoms whatsoever. We're still figuring that out. As for what you just mentioned, the the sort of movie contagion scenario where we start isolating people in individual uh, institutions, believe it or not, we have that in place for Ebola. We don't have that yet for COVID, because at the end of the day, COVID has essentially become part of our structure here in Canada. So we have to use everything at our avail. And that's the reason why all the hospitals uh, are, are essentially um, uh, waiting to take in patients. If we get to a point where we've basically stamped this puppy out, then we can start taking the Ebola route. But unfortunately, it's just too rampant right now to be able to do that. David in North Delta. Hi, David.
5: Hey, how are you doing? Good. I just want to say that that explanation that he gave us, actually answered questions for me for the last nine months that every light bulb went on that was an excellent explanation i'm going to sit down and talk with my kids and my family because everybody says it's the same thing as a a flu but to have that definition just uh, i don't know how to say but great job it just really (laughs) made sense to me no this is not a flu
8: this is quite different yeah. Thank you, you, David Once you get down to that molecular level, oh my goodness, it is so different. And thank you so much for saying that. I really yeah, appreciate I, that.
0: I appreciate that. And this is why we wanted Jason on today because you know the, there still is confusion out there. Let's. Uh, we got, only got a minute left, sadly. Marshall in Surrey. Hi. Got to go quick. I want to
5: ask the question: Is uh, the 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 opinion that vitamin D is a valid uh, help to prevent uh, getting sick from COVID?
8: Yes. And here's why. A lot of people say that it helps your immune system, it's boosting your immune system and all that type of thing. Eh, that's okay, it does. But what it also does is, remember at the very beginning, I had just talked about that ACE2 and how that had an effect on your cardiovascular, well, guess right. what? Vitamin D actually helps to supplement what ACE2 can't do. So if you have vitamin D in your body, and this has been done by studies like ages ago, it may actually help to reduce the chances of those problems in your bloodstream, so that may actually help to reduce any kind of severity in infections, even if your immune right. system's not doing it. So that's one of the reasons why vitamin D really looks to be a, a winner in this right. case. Still needs to be clinical trials. I know we got to go, but still, vitamin D is definitely hopeful.
0: Jason, we'll have to have you back because we, uh, we ran out of time with lots more calls, so we'll do it again. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Okay. Thanks a lot. That is Jason Tetro.